So my, my freshman year in high school, uh, football season was, was kind of winding down and, and I was starting to shift gears to get ready for basketball season and the point guard position was essentially mine. Like that was, that was my position, that was my role and, and I was ready. And so we had this guy who joined our school. His name was Dewan, but he quickly gained the nickname of L, short for L-O, like Kujay. He was from Long Island, and he wore Kangol and had that New York swag, and, and he had the, you know, the New York basketball game, all the flashy moves, and, and he played football. Like, he played the last, I don't know, two or three games with us, played running back, and once he and I realized that we were both battling for the same coveted point guard role, which the point guard position in basketball, you're, you're kind of like the coach on the floor. You got to know where everybody needs to be, both offensively. I mean, you are the general, right? So once he and I realized that we were really competitors now, like in football practice, I made a point to like make a few statements because he played running back. I played defensive back. So any chance I had to make my physical presence known, I tried to make it known like, bro, I'm not to be messed with. And he the same with me. So we're, it's like the last, like seasons, like it was the last game and we're in the locker room getting dressed after practice and coach put his locker right next to mine, which I don't know why he did that. So this guy says, he looks in my direction and he says, I just want everybody to know the point guard position is mine, so don't even think about it. It's like, okay, shots fired. Make a long story short, um, I beat him out for the position. After the second game of the season, Coach Abrams came to me in school during the day, and he said, I need to meet with you before practice, and I need you to bring your uniform. And I knew exactly what that meant. Midterm progress reports came out, and I was failing at least two classes. And downstairs in the basement of the gym of my high school, there I stood before Coach Abrams with my home and visitor uniforms. And I'll never forget, he looked at me, he said, son, you know the rules, no pass, no play. I wasn't passing my classes, and so, my season was over. My sowing in the classroom led to that hard reaping moment with Coach Abrams. It caught up with me. God had confronted David through Nathan the prophet regarding what he had sowed. But what would follow that confrontation would be David now learning what he's going to reap. That brings us to what I hope is a very sober moment, one that I hope to echo throughout the message this morning. I, I really, uh, we have to get this, but it's, it's God places a very high premium on sowing and reaping. Very high. God places a very high premium on sowing and reaping. One of the reasons for that is because of the priceless lessons that we learn from sowing and reaping. We learn some invaluable lessons, don't we? 
from sowing and reaping. Fathers and parents, listen, one of your best friends in parenting, particularly in those early years, is to teach your children this. It's to teach them about sowing and reaping. It's one of your best friends. It's one of your greatest teachers. It's to teach them that their decisions, one way or the other, always leads to or produces a consequence. You've got to teach them that. You do. Listen, children who do not learn the realities of sowing and reaping in the home are absolutely certain to learn them outside of the home, but in very costly ways. In very costly ways. But the lessons of sowing and reaping that we're going to look at today, they're not just for children. They're for us. Whether someone is five or 50, uh, these sober lessons of reaping that we're going to look at today is, I'm telling you, it should move all of us to the place where at a minimum we are hesitant to sow to the flesh. These lessons are very sober. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. So, David's reaping would correspond to his sowing. He brought the sword to Uriah's house, and in his reaping, God would bring the sword to his. It was corresponding. So out of the gate, here's what I want you to see. Our reaping is reciprocal. It's reciprocal. God said to David, the sword shall never depart from thy house, and it did not. The rest of 2 Samuel for David will be bumpy, and we're going to see that. As we discussed, the law mandated that if a man stole a sheep, to restore that, he had to restore four sheep for the one sheep that he took, a fourfold restoration. This is why David said that the rich man in the parable had to restore the lamb fourfold. But in his reaping, David would come to understand that fourfold restoration in a very personal and deep way. The child that was going to be born out of this adulterous act with Bathsheba would not live. David's son, Absalom, would murder David's son, Amnon. Joab is going to go on to murder Absalom. David's son, Adonijah, is going to be put to death. Reciprocal. That's very bitter reaping. Very bitter reaping. I'm not sure if you have this in your notes or not, but, but listen, David's reaping was so strong because he mocked God in his sowing. He mocked God in his sowing. Notice again, verse 10, God said, because thou hast despised me, Although God has magnified his word above his name, 
David essentially turned up his nose at God's word and said, step aside. I don't care what you say about adultery. I don't care what you say about covetousness. I don't care what you say about murder. I'm doing it. And in doing so, despise God himself. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That word mocked, it means to turn up the nose at. When we sow to the flesh from that place, we essentially show God that we have no regard for who he is, and we have no regard for what he says. We just turn up our nose to it. And the reaping of that will be corruption. That is, mocking God and sowing to the flesh leads to reaping ruin. Okay, so we don't have that. All right, so that's your blank. Ruin is your blank. All right? Whenever we're in that place, listen, we all realize that the sowing that we did was not worth the reaping, or the reaping that we're experiencing was not worth the sowing that we did. When you reap ruin, (laughs) you realize that, oh, wait a minute. Man, this was not worth it. I've been there a time or two in my life where it dawns on me that, man, the price of sin is always greater than the pleasure of it. Like, this was not worth it. You ever had an experience where you, you went out, you spent money on something, maybe, I don't know, a vacation or something like that, or, or you went to a restaurant and, and you got a really hefty check and the food was okay? You're like, man, this wasn't worth this. Sin is always like that, right? Once you start reaping corruption, once you start reaping ruin, you're like, no way. Man, this cost me a lot more than I thought. But the sowing and reaping principle works the other way as well, praise the Lord. Look at the rest of Galatians 6 again. He says, But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The point here is that honoring God and sowing to the Spirit leads to reaping eternal rewards. Man, praise God. Now that's worth it. (laughs) That's worth it now, and it'll be worth it throughout eternity. It's worth it. That is a clear contrast of mocking God and sowing to the flesh that only leads to ruin and loss. There are no eternal rewards when we sow to the flesh. No eternal rewards. If anything, it's the loss of them, which is, again, not worth it. But this brings me to give you a very critical verse. It's one of the easiest verses to memorize. And I would say, if I could give you a verse for the week, it would be 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. Guess what happens when you quench the Spirit? When you quench the Spirit, 
you're always going to sow to the flesh. And when you sow to the flesh, what's the outcome of that? You're going to reap ruin. This is why quenching the spirit is so costly. That word quench, it just simply means to extinguish. This is what we do when the Holy Spirit is trying to govern us, when he's trying to guide us, when he's trying to steer us, when he's trying to lead us to think, speak, and walk according to the word of God, and we take our flesh and we use it like a fire extinguisher and put that out. God says, don't do that. Don't do that. But listen, that is always the first step in mocking God and sowing to the flesh. It starts with quenching the spirit. That's the first step. That's the first step. So let's not do that. But listen, believers who sow to the spirit possess, and this is my heart for you, a razor-sharp sensitivity to the Spirit of God. You want that. I want that. If you're going to sow to the Spirit, you're going to have this, I mean, you walk in step, you walk in tune, you know when you have gotten outside the lines of your relationship with God. When the Holy Spirit speaks, when the Holy Spirit moves, when He's trying to guide you, when you have that razor-sharp sensitivity, I'm talking about the kind of sensitivity like when you go to the airport before you get on a flight and you go through that machine, right, that is trying to detect if you're carrying anything that you shouldn't be carrying onto the plane. It's very sensitive, right? I mean, you could have like a, a, a dime in your pocket and it's going to pick it up. And say, hey, wait a minute, is there anything in your pocket? And you start reaching through your pockets and, and they get mad because they just told you to empty everything and you didn't empty everything and they're kind of snapping at you. That's the kind of sensitivity we need to have with the Spirit of God. Like at the moment, there's just a slight deviation from anything that pleases the Lord. We are quick to say, okay. And man, we get right back in line very quickly. But man, if you don't have that razor-sharp sensitivity, you're going to grieve the Spirit of God. You're going to quench the Spirit of God. You're going to mock God. You're going to sow to the flesh, and then you're going to reap that. Verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee, out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. So in case we have missed it, God does not take to being mocked. He's not okay with it. Not at all. David was Uriah's neighbor, and he took his wife. God would take his wives and give them unto his neighbor who would lie with them in public. The neighbor in view here was none other than his very own son, Absalom. And we're going to see this in chapter 16 and verse 22, where on the top of the palace, Absalom would go in unto his father's concubines before the sight of Israel and the son. 
that was as dark as what David had done concerning Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And listen, it was the ultimate act of dishonor and humiliation of the king, his father. And Absalom did it. But this came out of David's own house, his family. And Absalom would not be the only son to express evil that would wound David out of his very own house. But here's our next observation about reaping, and that is this. Our reaping is familial. And this is tough because I, I, I really feel like I could spend the entirety of the message just on this point, really talking to, to husbands and fathers. Because there's something that too many fathers simply do not understand. And I've seen this too many times in church. But listen, the sins of the father often manifest in children. The sins of the father often manifest in his children. They often do. Absalom would lie with his father's concubines. Oh, his father did something like that, didn't he? How about King Solomon? What did he love? Many strange women. How about that? How about Lot, who moved into the immoral and perverse cesspool of Sodom? What impact did that have on his daughters? They committed one of the darkest and most sexually perverse acts in all of the Word of God. How about Genesis 26, 34, and 35? And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bashemeth, the daughter of Elam, the Hittite, which were a grief of mine unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Esau had no regard for God's word on polygamy. He had no regard for that. He had no regard with with, with taking pagan wives who were the very enemies of God. And while that was grievous to his parents, Isaac still sought to give Esau the patriarchal blessing. Isaac was a carnal man. <laughs> he was carnal. And it reads hypocritical that Isaac would be grieved because Esau was just like him. A man who loved the things of the flesh, like father, like son. Fathers, hear this. Our children will either glorify God or they're going to grieve His Spirit with their lives. There will be no in-between. It will be one of those outcomes. They're either going to glorify God or they're going to grieve His Spirit with their lives. Listen, what's going to have a major impact on which one of those becomes reality? Fathers, is what they watched you sow. Did they watch you sow to the flesh? Or did they watch you sow to the Spirit? They're watching You'd be amazed. You're, I'm telling you, your children are watching you. And they are taking notes. You are actually, you are actually 
helping them to develop their blueprint for the home. And here's how you're going to know that. You're going to know that when you're sitting in their home one day. And guess what you're going to see? You're going to see your home. That's the blueprints. Like, again, so that's why I say with Isaac, what was he grieving about? All he was doing was looking into a mirror. He was seeing himself. At this point, men, it should be clear that this is so bigger than us. This is so bigger than me. This is so bigger than you. And that we simply cannot afford to take lightly our walk with God. There's too much on the line, brothers. Our families, listen, are either going to pay because of our walk or they're going to benefit because of it. It will be one of those. All right, verse 12. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Um, prominent positions of leadership can be very misleading. Um, people will covet them for carnal reasons, uh, especially in church if we were to narrow the the context to that. The position that I'm standing in is for a lot of men in particular, they will covet this. I, how do I get to that point? How do I get to the point where I'm standing in front of people and, 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 I'm, and I'm driving the bus, so to speak? But let me just tell you something. The eyeballs are great when the leader is rising and they are even greater when he falls. So be careful what you wish for. This is one of many reasons why it is wise, listen, to never develop an appetite or an addiction to attention. You don't want that. You want to get to the place in your life where you are totally okay with not being seen, not being heard, and not being known. No one has to know my name. No one has to know who I am. The only name that I should be preoccupied with is the name that is above every name. And that's not Kenny Morgan. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's where we're going. Our reaping is educational. It is. God is going to use you. He's going to use me to teach others. Listen. God will use the mockery of one to teach many not to mock him. You see that? This is what I'm saying. <laughs> God's going to use you one way or the other to teach others some lessons. As heavy as it has been to walk through this portion of 2 Samuel, are we not benefiting from it? Are we not gleaning? Are we not learning from the darkness of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12? Yeah. A lot of eyeballs were on David then and now. So I'm saying it's just be careful. Uh, there's a lot that comes with leadership. How about Proverbs 21 verse 11? When the scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. And when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge. Man, God is so good. God is so faithful that 
He will use the foolishness of fools to teach us. How about that? God will always put before you examples of what to do, examples of what not to do. Examples of who to be and who not to be. God will do that. I think we can agree that we don't want God to use us the way that he's using David here, right? Like, Lord, I don't want to be that kind of instrument, uh, teaching instrument that you have to use. How about verse 13? And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. I have sinned against the Lord. Given where we've been in chapter 11 and where we've been in chapter 12 up to this point, those words felt like the sun breaking through the clouds for the first time in a year. The sun is shining again. It just came out. I have sinned against the Lord. The heart of the man who was known as the man who was after God's own heart has returned. This is what a man after God's own heart looks and sounds like. I have sinned against the Lord. Those words paint a beautiful portrait of genuine repentance. Genuine. No excuses, no attempts to justify sin, no blaming anyone else. I have sinned against the Lord. I have. I did that. I see it, Nathan. God has made it clear. It's exposed. Yes, I did it. The fullness of this is captured for us in Psalm 51. We'll look at a little bit of it. Verses 3 and 4, here it is. David said regarding this, For I acknowledge my transgressions, plural, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. For a year, David's been displeasing the Lord. For the first time in a year, when he said, from a heart of brokenness and contrition, when he said, I have sinned against the Lord, I have no doubt that God was pleased. God was pleased. Please, here's why. Boy, I'm going to give you these blanks, but I'm going to ask you to do something, okay? Once you get these blanks, would you circle this statement? Genuine brokenness and contrition are very attractive to God. Genuine brokenness and contrition are very attractive to God. They are 
a sweet-smelling savor. God says, I like that. God says, that's pleasing to me. Uh, Psalm 51.17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. What's God's issue with David? You despise me. So God says, let me show you how not to despise me. You ready? Brokenness and contrition. God says, I don't despise that. I love that. Listen, brokenness and contrition appeal to his mercy. They appeal to his mercy. Notice the rest of verse 13. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. According to Exodus 21.12 and Leviticus 20 verse 10, the sins of murder and adultery were punishable by death in the Old Testament. Which is what David deserved. But his brokenness and his contrition appealed to the mercy of God. He says, you're not going to die. Now, in the Lord putting away David's sin, that meant that David would not be put to death for his sin. However, it did not mean that God would put away the consequences, the reaping of what he sowed. Hence, the sober lessons of reaping. So here's our fourth lesson on reaping, and that is this. Our reaping is personal. It's personal. God managed David's reaping according to the brokenness and contrition of David's heart. That's how God managed it. David's brokenness and contrition, it actually moved God to preserve his life. If we learn nothing else from this, listen, my goodness, if I could give you a takeaway, this would be the takeaway of the whole message. Pride and arrogance, stubbornness and rebellion move God to move against you. And can I just tell you, if there is a fearful thought that I have, one that, that would cause me to fear and tremble, is the very thought of God moving against me. You wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. I'm telling you, brokenness and contrition, they are fragrances that God can't refuse. Oh, he loves that. If David was going to continue to harden his heart, you know what God could have done? He could have allowed Solomon to be born. And after that, ended David's life. 
And he still would have been able to honor the covenant that he made with David in chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. God did not have to preserve David's life. Finally, verse 14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So according to Exodus 19.6, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be the beacon, the icon, the light of light to pagan nations, to the world. They were to be that. They were to be a people who were set apart. They were to be a people who were different in both character and walk. That's who they were supposed to be, just like us. And here's why God mentioned what he mentioned about that. Mocking God can encourage others to follow suit. See, the issue was, Israel was to be all that to the other nations, but once they got word of what, of what David did, it says, oh, so that, that's the holy nation, huh? That's the kingdom of priests, huh? Is, is, that, is that what it looks like? Please. So your, your God is supposedly greater and higher than our God. Really? Your king says otherwise. Man, look at what he did. Boy, that kind of behavior is very influential, right? Because this, this wasn't just anybody. This was the king of the greatest nation on planet Earth at the time, Israel. That's not an easy or that's not a hard thing to follow. Murder and adultery and covetousness and lying. So as the word spread about what David had done, God wanted to make sure it spread about his response to it. But it's the end of verse 14 that gives us our fifth lesson. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Our reaping is final. It's final. You know, I've... You know, as a father, like all the fathers in the room, I, we have conversations with our children, right? Right, we, we teach them, we train them, and, you know, with, I mean, both my children have sin natures, and they are capable of the worst, just like any other human being. But my son in particular, um, particularly as he got into high school, and, and, you know, our conversations got a lot more adult, a lot more serious, and I just remember uh, a few times just, you know, communicating something along the lines that, go, that goes like this. Uh, son, there are some checks you can write in life that I can't cash. There are some problems that you can create that I can't solve. There are some holes that you can dig that I can't cover up. You need to know that. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, it, it, it's... <laughs> This sowing and reaping thing is real. So choose wisely. Choose wisely. There are some things that you can do that I can't reverse. It's final. 
Despite David's pleading with God, God's judgment would not be reversed. It was final. Now, by no means is the teaching here that this is the reason for infants passing. God forbid. It is clear from the context that this was God's judgment of David because of the sowing that he done. That's the context. That's what we're dealing with here. But the phrase surely die speaks to God's final judgment. Genesis 2.17, we know it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened? They surely died, didn't they? God said it. God told them. They surely died spiritually. How about Numbers 26 and verse 65? For the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And there was not left a man of them save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. God's judgment on this first generation of Jews that came out of the Exodus and died in the wilderness because of unbelief and rebellion. They surely died. They did not make it into the promised land. It was final. Uh, It was final with Moses. You can see it, but you're not going to enter into it. Final. (laughs) So let me just tell you, I, I think, you know, and for us, we, and again, I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just telling you, we, we were never the parents that counted to three. <laughs> All right, I just want you to know God doesn't count to three. And I really think one of the reasons that God gives us these portraits in Scripture, again, is to teach us, listen, not to play with him. God says, don't play with me. And when we mock God, that's what we're doing. We're playing with him. We're treating him as if he's not God. He's just us. So I can think, say, and do whatever I want. And you know what? You're going to just live with it, God. Oh, man. That's when we begin to taste some final reaping where God says, I'm going to use this reaping to teach you some things. That afternoon when I stood in the basement of my high school gym with my coach and had to hand my uniforms over to Coach Abrams, I had worked so hard on the court, in the weight room, on the football field. I had worked so hard to be the best athlete I could be. The problem was I wasn't working that hard in the classroom. And when he looked at me and said, son, you know the rules, no pass, no play, it was final. My season was over. And I I didn't go to one of those schools where, uh, you know, my coach would go to my teachers and go, hey, this guy's really good. Can we work this out? One of the reasons for that, because they had L. (laughs) It's like, we're good. (laughs) Go, Go study. We, we got a point guard. We're, we'll, we'll be fine. 
So if I saw L today, I'd give him a hug and tell him I love him. Uh, he was, he, we actually became decent friends a- after that. But, um, but no, it was final. It didn't matter how much I wanted to play. It didn't matter how good I thought I was. It's over. Genesis 32, 25, we get the account of uh, Jacob wrestling with God. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. This was the moment of the breaking of the con man, Jacob. And the whole point was to bring him to a place of, here it is, humility, brokenness, contrition, to put an end to his carnal, mischievous, deceptive ways. And in that wrestling match, God knocked Jacob's thigh out of joint. Look at verse 31. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. It is believed by many that this is how Jacob walked the rest of his life. That he walked with a limp. We have nothing to say the contrary. So I want you to hear this. God's mercy can leave us with a limp for the rest of our days. Can. Can. Isn't it amazing? Like God's mercy and God's grace, are they not marvelous? They are marvelous. But I've seen people Get away from the Lord. So to the flesh, nosedive into the world. Come back to the Lord and genuine brokenness and contrition. But for the rest of their natural life, they're going to limp with an incurable disease. I've seen that book. It doesn't mean that they're not forgiven. It doesn't mean that God is displeased with them. It just means that consequences can be final. This is why, brothers and sisters, we have to be so careful with what we sow to. Do we sow to the flesh? Do we sow to the spirit? This was a conversation I have with my children. There are some things that you can bring home in your body that I can't deal with. That's the truth. And like Jacob's limp, that limp is there to remind us, listen, that limp is there to remind us not of what we did, It's not there to keep us in guilt and shame. That's not the point. That's not the purpose of the limp. Here's the point and the purpose of the limp. Stay humble. Stay obedient.
I have a limp, not physically, but I have a limp that's in my mind and in my heart where any time there's something in my flesh that tempts me to war with my pastor, that limp says, we're not going to do that, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I, <laughs> Lord, you, you got it. <laughs> it's all good. We'll be fine. All right, our time is up. Um, so um, there's a reason I don't do the wrap-up. I feel clumsy with it, and it's, it feels like a hard transition. So I'm going to give it a go. All right, so you, you've got some reflection, right? And your notes should be on the screen as well. So we'll close with this. We'll give you some space to reflect. How about that? But quenching or extinguishing the spirit is always the first step in mocking God and sowing to the flesh. Did the Holy Spirit reveal to you that extinguishing his attempts to lead you is something that you are practicing? If so, and would you cry out to the Lord in sincerity for a razor sharp sensitivity to his spirit? I mean, you know if you're walking this way, right? You know if you're doing this, if you're... Here's the progression, right? In order to grieve the spirit, we have to first quench the spirit. Because what is it that grieves the spirit? Well, what grieves the spirit is sin. Well, how do we get to that point? Well, the first step is we got to extinguish the leading of the spirit of God, which means now we're going to do something that grieves the spirit of God. This is why we don't want to quench the spirit of God. So this is why you want to be so sensitive. Can I just tell you one of the things that I always looked at and I still look at, even that my children are 19 and 18, the thing that I would look at very, very closely was how quickly do they break when we had to deal with them or have to deal with them about disobedience? How quickly do they break? The quicker they break, that told us exactly where they were. Praise God. They break easily. They break quickly when they realize they've displeased the Lord. Excellent. That's what God wants from you and me. <laughs> he wants us to break quickly. Two, genuine brokenness and contrition are very attractive to God. How would you describe your attraction to them? And what impact does that have on your walk with God? I, I think that's a good reflection. Hey, listen, whatever is attractive to God ought to be attractive to us, right? So if God loves, if God is pleased with the fragrance of, of brokenness and contrition, then it ought to be something that I covet, you covet, right? And then has God's mercy left you with a limp in life? If so, thank him for his mercy and embrace the continual reminder to be humble and obedient. That limp is not there to make you feel guilty or put you down. It's there to help you to walk properly as you continue to walk in life. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us in this part of 2 Samuel chapter 12. I do pray that it won't return void. In Jesus' name, amen.